Thank you to the Pickett family for leading us this morning, and um, yeah, what a joy to be together to remember that hope that we have in Christ in the midst of our darkness. And you know, before we get into uh, the message, I just I just want to share with you just uh, maybe a bit of a reflection um, as we were singing that song, and I was listening to the Pickett's lead us in that reading, that last song we sang. Um, I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. You know, I, it, I don't know if you're like me, but the reality of the, sometimes the pain, the hardship, the darkness of this world um, sometimes presses in in different ways, and um, it can be frustrating. It can be hard. It can cause anxiety, as Matt talked about. It can um, lead to real pain and real suffering, real things that we face. And in those moments, if you're like me, sometimes I'm tempted to try and respond to those things. Um, you ever wonder what causes us to respond in anger or to lash out? It's our frustration with the darkness. It's our frustration with the reality that this world is broken. And in those moments, we want to lash out and we kind of want to respond in some way. And what hit me as someone who regularly has the blessing and opportunity to proclaim God's word is how often I want to respond with my words in my way to achieve and accomplish the results that I think I can might grab hold of if I just were to say the right thing or to have the right pointed response. So as we sang that song, I was just, one, I was a bit convicted, but I was reminded that as we wait in this darkness, there is hope, and the hope is in the Word of God. The Word of God. We say often, if you're a guest with us this morning, you'll hear this from now until Jesus returns or as long as we are able to gather together, that the Word is what we rely on to do the work. And so often as we wait and that frustration bubbles up and sometimes results in anger or some sort of response, I just want to encourage you, rely on the Word of God. Trust in the Word of God. Let that song be the truth of our hearts, that we will wait, we will wait, we'll wait patiently, and we will even endure. And as we do that, we will lean on God's word, and we will let it sustain us, we will let it be our guide, we will let it direct our lives. And my testimony, and I know the testimony of so many others is, when we do that, we are strengthened by his word, and we are sustained by his word, and it will carry us forward, even in the midst of of some really hard things, really dark times. Um, I look around this room and I can see lives that I know are testimonies to that being true. They have been sustained. They have been strengthened. They have walked through darkness and deep valleys of life. And the word of God has carried them through in that. That's where hope comes from. That's what we celebrate this morning. So that was all for free and extra. We're going to begin this morning as we kick off our Advent series, a study in the Word of God, uh, the book of 1 John. Um, 1 John is a letter uh, that was written by the Apostle John. It's one of five books that we uh, know were written in our New Testament by the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples. And at the time of writing this letter, he was uh, more than likely the last living Apostle. All the others had died martyrs' deaths, and John is left... And he's writing 
this letter to the church, the churches in Asia. It's a group of churches, and this letter would have been circulated. The other writings you may be familiar, the Apostle John wrote were, of course, his Gospel John. He wrote then the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also wrote Revelation. And so we have this letter that's given to us, and in John's Gospel, he looked at the life of Jesus, his whole life, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Um, And in a sense, it's John looking backwards on his life, looking back at all that Jesus did, and the purpose, and we know in that writing and what John intended to illuminate for us was the deity of Christ, that that God or that Jesus was God, that he wasn't uh, some just simply a man and he wasn't uh, simply um, a wise teacher or a rabbi, but know that he was God himself. And then he writes these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and these letters are in a sense written to the present times, sort of John's contemporaries, sent to churches to be encouraged that because of who Jesus is, because of the testimony of his life, this is how we should live and how our lives should be guided and directed in response to the life of Jesus. And then, of course, Revelation is this vision that John is given by Jesus to the future. As I was preparing and thinking about over these last few weeks where we should go um, in our teaching series in terms of a, a study and, and preparing for Advent, I landed on this text, um, one, out of the inclination that, as I just said earlier, um, it was time for us to get back into a book. If you have only been with us for the last three weeks, you know that I've kind of been popping around to some different texts. It's our habit here at City Church to more often than not be working our way through a book of the Bible feasting on the Word of God, letting again the Word do the work. And so I wanted to do that. And I was sharing with a friend, um, just as we sometimes do, uh, talking about where, you know, hey, what are you going to preach on Advent? Do you have something? And I said, I'm going to preach through First John. And he gave me a slightly puzzled look. He's like, okay, that's uh, interesting. But then I started to question myself. I'm not sure how smart I am. Maybe I chose the wrong text. Um, it's so common, of course, in this time of sort of season in our church calendar to maybe look at that book of Isaiah, those Old Testament prophecies that point to the Messiah, or to maybe work through one of the four Gospels and sort of the story of Jesus' life to prepare us uh, for Advent and to walk through Advent. But this is why I believe this book will serve us um, and prepare our hearts. It's because John wrote this book to teach us and to remind us that Jesus came, that he walked amongst us, and to confront and combat some false teaching that perhaps Jesus, yes, he was God, but he wasn't the God-man. And the incarnation, that big word that means that he took on flesh, that God came to dwell with us, that is what we celebrate at Christmas. And so I believe it applies well and They'll start teaching classes in the future about how to use 1 John in Advent. No, they will not do that. But this incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, it's important. God, who sometimes seems so distant and far off, and perhaps you've wrestled with that, and you've wondered, where is God? Is he aware of me? Is he involved? That God would come to dwell with his creation means that our faith is not just some spiritual or mystical reality, but that it has tangible roots. It's anchored to the real life 
of the real man who was God, Jesus Christ. And so, let me read for us, beginning in 1 John chapter 1, and I'll read the first 10 verses. That which was from the beginning, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John begins this text in 1 John, that which was from the beginning. This won't be behind you on the screen, but I want to just read for you the first few verses of John chapter 1, John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we can gather and worship, and we can be reminded that you came to dwell with us. The eternal Son of God, took on flesh, humbled yourself to come and dwell with us so that you might live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserved, but then rise up, conquering sin and death for all time. I pray that the hope of your life, your light might shine this morning in our midst and wherever there is darkness in our hearts that you would overcome it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So John begins his letter, that which was from the beginning, very similarly to the way that he began his gospel. In the beginning was the word. What it teaches us in this is where John is sort of picking up almost in a similar fashion to where, not where he left off, but in the way that he began his gospel message, is that he is trying to show us that he's now talking about, or he's addressing a different issue. In his gospel, as I said, he was dealing with or teaching us that God came to dwell with man and that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, that Jesus was God himself. Well, here in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes, we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that Jesus came and dwelled with us, that the eternal took on the temporal. Our flesh, our bodies are sometimes referred to as temporal things. They are temporary. They will die. These bodies will die. 
And Jesus took on that flesh. He stepped down from eternity to be with us. And John testifies that this eternal God, this Jesus who he knows, he had heard him, he saw him, he touched him. We can imagine that John spent so much time with Jesus that he was just like you and I, spending time with one another. He rubbed shoulders with Jesus. He knew this eternal God, Jesus, personally. And he says that we're here to testify that he came and he walked with us. He was with us. We experienced him in every bit of realness that you can experience anything else in life, which is something to marvel at, that God would come to dwell with us. Now, why would John be addressing this situation? Why would he feel the need, as he's writing letters, this letter to the churches to be distributed, to encourage the churches as they have put their faith in Jesus and are beginning to grow and multiply and do all just very similarly to our story coming back, as James alluded to, from 2014, and we've seen Jesus move and breathe. Why does John feel the need to write this letter and address this reality that Jesus came and dwelled with him, and that he took on flesh, that the incarnation was real. Well, as we will learn as we get into this book, John is confronting some false teaching that has crept into the church. It's a false teaching that was referred to, is sometimes referred to as Gnosticism. That's a big word, and it's rooted in the Greek word that means knowledge, gnosis, which means to know. And the Gnostics had sort of come into the church, and they were melding this pagan mysticism with some Greek mythology to begin to teach that Jesus was not truly man. He did not come and take on flesh, that the incarnation was not real. This led to, in a sense, two beliefs. One, that the knowledge that they possessed was some special knowledge that led to salvation that only they could know, and as they sort of indoctrinated people into their teaching or came, then you might be able to see and understand and know this special knowledge that only the initiated into the body knew. The second was is that the the spiritual realm was that all that was good. And anything that consisted of matter... Anything that was tangible, anything that you could touch and feel was evil. And so, therefore, our flesh was evil. So you have these sort of this two-fold teaching that Gnostics were, again, sort of coming into the church and beginning to proclaim. We have a special knowledge. And once you have been initiated into our group and sort of begun to follow us, then you'll also receive this special knowledge. And part of that special knowledge that they had received was that The spiritual was good, and the soul, in a sense, was good, but all flesh, all matter, was evil. Well, this then leads to, as everything I often refer to this, I say this a lot as well, everything comes down to theology. What do you believe about God? And so if this is their belief about God, if this is the way that they are living their lives and what they're teaching, that leads to two actions or sort of two responses if either of those things are true. The first is, or could be, Asceticism. Asceticism, another big word, and I'm sorry I'm using all these big words. I'm not that smart, I just read a lot of books. Asceticism is this denial of the flesh, in a sense to deny yourself and say that I'm going to punish my flesh because all flesh is evil, 
I'm going to deny any of the good gifts that God would give us and sort of refrain from all of those things. And you can see how that asceticism would then become a form of legalism to say if you were doing anything that would indulge your flesh, any, enjoying any of the good gifts that God might give us, that would be sinful and that would be wrong. So that is one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin, and there was sort of two camps that we're sort of dealing with here, and John will address them both, would be licentiousness. Essentially, we can do whatever we want. The flesh is evil. It cannot be cleansed. It cannot be redeemed. It cannot be holy in any sort of the word. And so if that's the reality, then it doesn't matter what we do because it's not going to ever correct or fix our problem. So those are the two sort of types of living or lifestyles and that overflowed from this belief. This belief also had an implication for what they believed about Jesus. They came up with two false doctrines to support their case. The first is, is that Jesus didn't come to dwell with his people, but only seemed to. That what they saw of Jesus was, in a sense, they taught that he was like a ghost or a phantom, that he could not be touched or seen or heard. Because again, God could not take on flesh if all flesh and all matter is evil. God who is holy could not do that. So this was their way of sort of trying to work around that or to teach that. The other thought, there was another group, was that Jesus did have a body. He was a man born, and at his baptism... The Holy Spirit came and descended upon him and filled him. And for those three years of his ministry, as he roamed the earth, he was filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and did all that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the cross, when suffering began, the Holy Spirit left him. And that is why they would claim, these teachers would say, the reason that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was that the Holy Spirit was being removed from him. This was their answer to how these things Worked out because, again, Jesus could not be God if flesh is evil, if the spiritual realm is all that matters. Well, what does this false teaching do to the gospel? What does this do to all of the rest of the story of Scripture if we narrow our lens and begin to try and, as the Gnostics were doing, teach this false teaching? If Jesus wasn't God then this doctrine of the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, is destroyed. God did not come to dwell with his people. Jesus is not familiar, as we talked about in our study of Hebrews, with our suffering. He is not the high priest who is able to empathize with us in our suffering because he was not ever with us. And he was not, he didn't deal with the temptation and all of the issues that we deal with. And so we have a God who is terribly distant from us that we cannot know. That's false. Secondly, what this does to the gospel, how could Jesus atone for sin if, like some taught, he was a man who was then filled with the Spirit for a season of time that then departed him? How could he rightly atone for sin? Because as man, marred by sin, then he would have something to atone for within himself. And just in case this isn't clear, the reason that Jesus is the proper and rightful and the only one who can atone for sin, who can satisfy God's holy wrath against sin, is because he was sinless. If he had sin within himself, 
then there would need to be atonement for himself, and we can't provide atonement for ourselves. As, I don't know if this has ever happened. Has your children ever raised their hand when they were about to be punished and there was a punishment coming, and they said, yeah, I'm going I'm to go ahead and just do that for myself? Have they volunteered for that? Do they say, hey, I, need, I, I messed up, so I just wanted you to know that, Dad, and here's, I'm going to kind of go ahead and levy this against me. If they did that, they're playing a game on you, by the way, younger parents. There's something worse that they're not telling you about, and they're trying to kind of slide this one in. But no, they don't do that. That's not what, we don't raise our hands and say, let me, let me kind of atone for my own sin here. That's, because that's not how we're wired, because sin is real. And if Jesus was not God, then he would have sin that he would need to atone for. He would need a substitute. Well, Jesus is our substitute. The beauty of the gospel is that we do have a substitute in Jesus, the God-man who did come and dwelled with us, that is with us, and he could satisfy God's proper wrath against sin. Now you're saying, man, he is going on and on about this. Who cares? No one believes any of that. Well, you'd be wrong. And I expect that you probably, even as I might have been speaking and kind of sharing what these Gnostics taught, some of these false teachings, you may not have heard the term Gnosticism or might have not seen it described as that. And we don't have many that are walking around calling themselves these things. But that false teaching still exists. It still creeps in. There is still this idea that some might have some special revelation that is not contained in Scripture. How many books exist no longer in the Barnes and Noble aisles, but on the Amazon cloud, filled with special revelation, things that God does not reveal to us in his word that are sort of sold to the Christian community as This is like the word of God. Not always false, but not the word of God. Not rooted and anchored in truth. I'll name one. Do you remember the popular, and I know I'm going to age myself here, and none of the kids will get this, but the Da Vinci Code? Very popular book with movies that were all sorts of things. False teaching about this special revelation that Jesus wasn't really God and all of these things. These are the types of things that creep in. Anyone else ever seen someone or experienced, and maybe this is your own testimony, before you came to faith in Christ, was that you believed that what you did in this life didn't really matter? It doesn't really matter how I live? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die? That false teaching still exists. It still creeps in under different language and perhaps different terms. But John is writing to us to combat that. He's saying, I have heard, I have seen, I have touched the real Jesus. And I want to go back to the language that he uses here, and I know I'm getting really specific with words here, but it's so critical to understand what John is saying in these first few verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. And then he has this parenthetical. Some of you might have in your Bibles a dash between verses 1 and 2 and another dash at the end of verse 2 between verses 2 and 3. And so if we skip down to 3 where he's continuing what he started in 1, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. What he's doing here, he's using two different types of verbs and when they're translated with the same word here, seen, heard, and touched. In the first verse of of, of verse 1, this seen, heard, and touched, he's saying, this is what I have done, I have seen, I have touched, I have heard the real Jesus. 
And in verse 3, he's using a future tense of the verb that says, I still can see and hear and feel tangibly the evidence of Jesus walking with me. This is a, a, a relationship that John had with Jesus that is so real that he can still even experience it here 60, 70 years after walking with him. You ever had any of those experiences? I know we often refer to these. Where were you on 9-11? Where were you when this situation happened? I can remember vividly, clearly standing in each of the, the, the hospital room at the, each of the births of my sons. I can still even somewhat just feel around the room. The little incubator was over here. Laurel's there. I can, I can picture it. Momentous days in my life. And John is saying, I saw Jesus. I walked with him. I touched him. I heard his words to me, and I can still hear them ringing in my ear. I can still sort of feel the warmth of his embrace all these years later. Yes, Jesus is real. The eternal took on the temporal, and he walked with us. And it changed his life. Because, as he says in verse 2, at the, or excuse me, at the end of verse 1, Jesus is the word of life. This real Jesus is the word of life. John loves to use this language if we refer back to John's gospel in chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's referring to Jesus there, by not, not by using his name, but he's using the term word or the title word or the name word to describe Jesus. Jesus is the word of life. And he describes him in that way to remind us and to teach the church that it is through him and him alone that John has life, that we have life. John is very aware that Jesus came and walked with him. He's also very aware in these moments, perhaps, again, more than likely very old age, the church is beginning to face persecution and deal with real hardships. And John's hope in the midst of that darkness is that that real Jesus that he knows is still alive today. He's the word of life. I can picture John as he's writing these words thinking back to that day when he saw the resurrected Jesus in the upper room. And he saw his friend Thomas doubt and say, let me touch your wounds. And they're sitting there, and he, he's remembering when Jesus first appeared, he comes through the wall, and he, John, I just can imagine, he jumped up and probably gave Jesus a hug. That's his friend, and John is referred to as the disciple who was the beloved. There was a closeness that he had with Christ. And so he knows the life that Jesus had and the life that Jesus has given him. He walked with Jesus until his departure. And so John says to us, this life that I know is real, that was made manifest, that we have seen, he testifies to it and proclaims to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us at the end of verse 2. Jesus is the word of life, and the life that John witnessed is the message that we proclaim. John is saying this life that we all witnessed, this is the message that we proclaim. We're telling you all that we're telling you because we want you to know this real Jesus. This Jesus welcomed us 
into fellowship with God. Look at the language that he uses. The life, verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. By the way, he hasn't used Jesus' name yet, but he's referring to him as the word of life again. That which we have seen in verse 3 and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John's purpose in writing this is now becoming clear. We want you to know this real Jesus because this Jesus that we witnessed is who we proclaim to you that leads to life. This fellowship with God, there's a lot to unpack here, and I don't have enough time to unpack it all. But this idea of fellowship with God is so critical to John's teaching and what it means that we can know this Jesus. Fellowship, that word that is used there in verse 3, is not just sort of a hanging out with Jesus. I know we do that, you know, in student ministry, let's go hang out with Jesus. That's old school. We used to say things like that. This isn't just a hanging out with Jesus. This fellowship with God is an intimacy with God. It's being united with Christ. And it's being also united together with Christ in our salvation. This is what we experience as a church family. One of the reasons that Jesus gave us the church and gave us to one another is so that as we experience fellowship with one another on this sort of horizontal plane, we would have a better understanding of what it means to have fellowship with God, a union with God, a, a closeness with God. By the way, just as a quick aside, this is why we have church membership next week, City Church 201. If you have not ever taken that step of joining with the church and partnering with the church, I want to encourage you to take that step. There's a purpose to it, though. That sermon I'll preach at 201, so if you want to hear all of that, you need to come next Sunday after the 1045 service. But this fellowship, this, this relationship is so critical that the eternal Son of God came to dwell with us so that we might have eternal life with Him. We might have fellowship with Him and that that would not be broken. That fellowship would not be broken. As John closes this sort of introductory section In verse 4, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, as you read that, you may think to yourself, who is this our? Does John have a companion that he's writing with? No, here's the beauty of the Bible, the power of the Scriptures. When John says this is our joy, that our joy might be complete, he's referring to his readers, to those who would also believe in this real Jesus, so that together our joy might be complete in our knowledge of who Jesus is, in in the understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus. And the apostle is linking arms. And so as we read this text, so many years later, John is speaking to us saying, so that our joy, our brother who is now with Jesus, John, is telling all of us that our joy would be complete in understanding and knowing this real Jesus who came to walk with us. Finally, in the closing section of this chapter, John teaches us the implications. I shared with you the implications of what the Gnostics taught and how that could impact our lives. Here, John says, because of this, let me explain what all of this might mean. What are the implications of this witness that we have and the message that we proclaim. Well, fellowship with God leads to walking with God. 
the source of our joy and having fellowship with God begins at an understanding of who Jesus is. But if we just believe about Jesus, if you just sort of take what we've said and what, or what John has said about Jesus and then look inward, we miss the point. We miss the point. When I travel, and many of you know this by now, I love the mountains, I love streams, I love fishing and riding a bicycle. When I go out into creation, I get to sort of get away from the city and experience all of those beautiful things. It doesn't cause me to look inward. When I look out and see the magnitude of creation, I see the beauty of creation, I see all of these things, I am just drawn, in a sense, to look outward and to say, there's something there. God has done this, and it's caused me to not look inward. It's caused me to look at the beauty and the power and all the small things of this life. Guess where they'd go? They diminish. That annoying guy at the traffic stop, not a big deal when I'm looking at a mountain. That frustrating text message that I just kind of want to ignore, that family situation that I'm not really sure how I'm going to deal with, all of those things that are lesser than just sort of diminish. And when we look at Jesus and we have fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with God, it causes us to walk with him. It leads us into walking with him. As I consider the greatness of Jesus, that he would come and walk with us and to to take on flesh, to humble himself, as Philippians 2 says, to come and be like me, I'm forced to consider how unworthy I am. I'm not worthy of that kind of love. I'm not worthy of it. And when I do that, when I look at myself and I am forced to look inward, this is what John gets to in verse 5, I have to acknowledge that there is darkness in my life. This is the message, verse 5, it says, We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, very important. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're going to have fellowship with God, we'll walk with God. In the beginning of walking with God, John says, is repentance. To acknowledge the darkness. This message that John proclaims begins with God. Look at, again, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. John says, I've seen Jesus. His message is true, is real. I've heard it. I proclaim it to you. It's the message that has survived all these years later as he's writing this letter. And that Jesus, he tells us that God is light and there is no darkness in him. There's nothing evil about him. No, his flesh was not evil. He was completely holy. And as we look at that Jesus, we then have to look at ourselves and say, okay, where am I? 
And if we try to say to ourselves, if we try to deceive ourselves as perhaps the ascetics did and say, no, there's no sin to me, it doesn't matter, or the licentious people that said, it doesn't matter how we live, if we do that and we just try to ignore our sinfulness, we lie. And we can't ever make that way. There's no bridge there to God. No, the beginning of fellowship with God is repentance and to acknowledge that there is darkness in us. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, Fellowship with God. Do not suppose that you must commit great crimes to be lost. So often this is what we sometimes can think or is projected about Christianity. No, the road to spiritual laziness, doing nothing, leads just as certainly to hell. We must acknowledge as we look at God and we look at his holiness that yes, we have sin. There is darkness in us. We can't call God a liar by doing that. But notice the message. Maybe different than you've heard before in church. He doesn't say that we must not have sin. He doesn't say that we have to punish ourselves for our sin. He says we just must acknowledge our sin. We must confess our sin. If we deny our sin, we can't have fellowship with God. But if we acknowledge and confess our sin, we have fellowship with God and therefore fellowship with one another. Our relationships are completely changed. That's why I said, listen at verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to welcome us into fellowship with him. This is the beauty of the gospel Walking in the light of the gospel leads us into eternal life. One more quote from Ryle. Christ will never be found the savior of those who know nothing of following his example. Saving faith and real converting grace will always produce some conformity to the image of Jesus. As we walk in the light with Jesus, in fellowship with Jesus, as we've confessed our sins and we've received that salvation, we've received his grace and his mercy and the forgiveness of sins. I said to you, I look at God and I look at the magnitude of God and the holiness of God and I say, I'm not worthy of that, God. I don't even know, I don't, there's no way. How could I have relationship with you? And then Jesus says, confess your sins to me. Come to me and confess them and I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and welcome you into my marvelous light. This is the gospel. See, if Jesus didn't come, then I have no choice than to try, as Ryle confronted in that first quote, to deny my sin. Much of our world does that. That's not sin. That's not sin. That's, there, there is no sin. There's many people in this world who believe that there is nothing that could be considered sinful. Sin is something that we don't want to talk about. Even in so many churches, even the word sin has sort of been tried to be sort of pushed aside. I don't know how they do that with the scriptures being so clear, but sort of not wanting to ever deal with sin. And John says, no, confess your sins to the one who came so that you could be cleansed of them. Because Jesus did come, I'm set free from trying to deny or hide from my sin, and I'm welcomed into a relationship where I can confess them to an almighty God and receive redemption. I don't know if you've ever played paintball. I like paintball. 
But I'll tell you, when I play paintball, and I a lot of times have played with my sons and their friends, we've had various outings where we get to go and play paintball. I'll just confess to you, this might sort of be a little bit embarrassing, but I get a little bit of anxiety. And that anxiety comes from this sort of this, this tension that I feel as I'm playing paintball, I can't help but just sort of place myself in that real battle and think, can you imagine if these were real bullets? Can you imagine the fear and the anxiousness? Just like no matter, you know, you got to duck your head out. And you're, I mean, just the, the and, and I, I, of course, honor and revere our military who so bravely confront those fears and able to somehow push those aside and step into those hard places. But when I'm on the paintball field, I'm just, I'm a little bit fearful, but then I'm with my kids, so I got to look like big and hero. And so I kind of step out and, you know, once I do that, then I get shot. And when you get shot in paintball, here's what happens. When you've never played this before, if you, when you get shot in paintball, you just kind of put your arms up and you just sort of walk off the field. And guess what you do as you're walking off the field? You're walking in the midst of the battle that's continuing to go on. There's bullets flying all around you, but they aren't allowed to shoot you. Now, you sometimes have an erroneous child that likes to still do that. But more than likely, you're not going to have any pain or any suffering any longer. You just get to sort of walk off the battlefield and say, I'm not worried about all these bullets roaming around me. Jesus came to dwell with us. The real Jesus, the God-man came to take on flesh and be like us to redeem us so that we can confess our sins and we could say, I'm not worthy, God. I have no claim on you. But in your love and your mercy, I just confess it to you. I just put my arms up and just say, I'm guilty, I'm dead. I die to myself. And then we get to go and live life and all the bullets are gonna be flying. There's pain and suffering and those are real things that we, we still will struggle with. But we're free we're freed from that. We're welcomed into the light. And darkness cannot overcome that. And while those bullets are still going to be flying around us, and every now and again we might take a little body blow, they won't kill you because you've already died to yourself and you have fellowship with the eternal God. He welcomes you into that. I proclaim that message to you, friends, humbly, inviting you to say, I believe in that real Jesus. Confess your sins. Maybe as the worship team leads us, you just need to bow your head and just say, you're right, God, I've, I've been walking in darkness. I've been trying to tell everyone around me that there is nothing, there's nothing sinful in my life. I just need to con confess those things to him and receive his tender mercy, his forgiveness, his redemption. Redemption means that you have been made holy, justified, transferred from that darkness to light. Put your hands up and walk off the battlefield and say, I'm free because of who Jesus is, because Jesus is real. I pray that that would be our testimony as we leave this morning. Worship team is going to lead us and we're going to respond to this message of grace um, however you need to. In prayer, stand up and sing the belief Jesus is real. There is hope in the darkness because of it. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa. 
for the glory of God and the good of the city.